Welcome to the Carl Reader Show. Hello and welcome to the Be Your Own Boss Show, where today I'm delighted to be joined on April Fool's Day of all days by a comedian, Sarah Archer. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Carl. It's nice to be here. Brilliant. So first things first, let's kick off with a question I ask every guest. Who is Sarah? I think, well, I guess at the heart of it all, I guess I'm, I'm a performer. I think if there's, there's three things I had to describe myself, aside from obviously being a mum and a, and a partner, all, all that good stuff, um, I'd say a performer, a coach and a writer. Those tend to be the things that I do best, if that makes sense, or that, that sort of that make me passionate, you know, fill me with passion, if you like. So, Brilliant. yeah, performer, a coach and a writer. Fantastic. So performer in particular, I'm going to drill down into that to start with because I know loads of kids sort of grew up thinking that they want to be on stage, they want to be on film, they want to, you know, they want to do this stuff. Yes. But there's the disconnect in our education system which primes them to do a job. How, how, how did you land into reaching that goal of being a performer? Well, I guess, I mean, I always wanted to, at school I did drama, um, not in the oh, I did I did do GCSE drama was the only thing they offered they didn't offer an O level, and then I went on to audition for some of the the drama schools, but they told me to go away and get some more life experience and come back. Okay. And then unfortunately, I got onto the treadmill of life and got a job and started earning money, and it's hard to to give up that sort of you know lifestyle to go and effectively you know, be a waiter or whatever while you're resting as an actor. Because I started, my love was acting. Sure. Um, and then when I was about, so I've always done some sort of acting or improv or you know, stuff on the side. And then I think, I'm trying to remember how old I was. So it must be about 17, 18 years ago now. I must have been just on the cusp of 30. Went to a comedy gig with my um, then husband and the compere said, has anyone got a joke? So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. So I love an audience. And uh, <laughs> <That's great>. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I'll give it a go. And I didn't have, it was, it was just a joke I'd heard. So it wasn't my own joke. I got up, did the joke. Everyone loved it. Said what, that, what was the joke? Oh, my goodness. I can't, I can't remember. I wish I could. I, can't, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> couldn't tell you. Um, but it, yeah, they loved it and uh, said that I had great timing. So I went off and did a course, weekend course. And then started doing stand-up comedy and then yeah that was that's about it so just from there I, I mean I, I continued the acting off and on but so I, I now mix less stand-up than writing comedy for theatre um, so I do it occasionally the stand-up but I also I've written a play I have another play in the works and that's been published internationally so I like to put the comedy into into theatre now sure so, yeah. so, so um, I'm just going to rewind this a little bit yeah. what, what was the job the job that I did? Yeah. Ah, so I, I spent 20 plus years in, in HR. So, and, well, my initial career started off in IT. So I have an IT background. And then uh, I was working, I w moved abroad to Germany. And then I had a, a fork in the road between, as I became, <laughs> I became chair of the Works Council just okay. at 22, which is a bit unheard of. And then I came a fork in the road to either go into HR or go into marketing. I decided at that point, when I was 23 or whatever, I'll go into HR, came back to England, and then worked my way up to be director of HR. Um, 
But funnily enough, it's come full circle and I now do marketing. So yes. it's a big part of what I do. So I think there must have always been that. But I think it links to sort of writing and performance in a way, marketing, because, it, you know, it, it does. Is. It does. And it's interesting. But, you know, the, the question in my mind was, why did you choose HR? Because uh, when you think of performance, you think of storytelling, yeah, that, that is ma marketing, as you say. It is, although I would maintain. So I ended up in HR because when I was in the Works Council in Germany, it was, it was a German company. I had to learn a lot about employment law, about change, about uh, introducing stuff into the business. That got me interested in HR. So there was those dual things. And I, I do think that when you are in HR, effectively it is about marketing. You have really, there's not many HR people that have got a lot of power. It's mm. all about influencing stakeholders. And you do end up presenting an awful lot um, and, and, and trying to market ideas for change and change itself. So for me, I think it's a, you know it's underplayed and they should probably equip more HR people with better communication, better marketing and all that good stuff. And, and, a, and a maybe sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I did a, an HR podcast for the CIPD and I just said, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have that. Yes. Okay, so moving on to comedy. So you um, you took your chance, you, you took the very brave step of um, saying a joke in front of a crowd. Uh, the crowd loved it. Yeah. What makes a good joke? Well, there's, there is an actual formula to okay. a joke. I mean, we love a framework and it's easy to, to sort of follow a process. And people think that comedy, you have to be, you know, there's, you have to be a natural born comedian. And I always say it, it helps a little bit, but you can teach comedy. And one of the things that makes a good joke is having these critical ingredients. So it's always got, to, it's got a formula, which is what we call the threes formula. You've got to have a target. So it's got to be some a button for the joke. Sure. It doesn't necessarily have to be a person. There's got to be some hostility. So there's got to be a really strong opinion towards that thing, that person or whatever. Then there's got to have some realism and then some exaggeration. And I always the great sort of example of this is, you know, you, you always have Laurel and Hardy, um, you know, all Morecambe and Wise. There's a straight man and a funny guy, or, the, or women. So the realism has got to be there to make people believe. And then the exaggeration also it can be part of the punchline. So there's, yeah, and then you've got emotion. And then the last and perhaps the most important thing is surprise. So those are the ingredients of a great joke. Um, you can have a fantastic joke on paper and the delivery can be really poor. Sure. So there's those two. So and that's you, where timing comes in? Yeah, exactly. And, okay. and it's, yeah, it's, and, and also commitment. Because I think it's, like anything in life, you don't commit, um, you can look a right yes. kid. <laughs> it's okay. just uh, keep it relatively clean, but yeah, you, you need to commit to it. So can you bring the uh, rules of three to life with a joke so that we can talk through an example of, of what makes the joke funny? Uh, oh, I didn't think you were going to ask. I should oh, I should, no, no, it's fine. I should, I'm sure I can come up. So, um, so there's, it's not mine. It's, it's always one I use as a great example of uh, rule of three. Now, I've got loads of jokes at the beginning of my podcast, which are mine. But um, so this one is uh, global. It's about global warming. Things are going to change. Um, there's going to be, you know, some some species are going to be upset. Polar bears, um, whales, goths. So so it's the rule of three is about setting up a pattern, and then the last 
the last thing breaks that pattern. Sure. But that is all jokes are about is, is misdirection effectively. Yeah. Okay. And what's the funniest joke you've ever heard? Oh, I see. I, I love, I, I quite like um, the comedian. I mean, I like loads, but, and it's a bit difficult to say now, but Louis C.K., who is a bit of a, you know, you don't like to mention his name now, but he, he did a, a he had a whole comedy thing about being hilarious and how we misuse the word hilarious. And he was talking about um, also the sort of white, you know, Western privilege about people being in a plane and moaning and they're on, you know, about the speed of the internet. And they're like, you're sitting in a seat in a plane flying. Um, it's it just that whole sort of taking things in out of the context. And then I also love, there's a guy called John Mulaney in America. And I heard some something he did recently, which I absolutely loved. Now, he compared, not to get political, but the concept was funny. He compared Donald Trump, without sort of mentioning Trump, he compared Donald Trump's presidency to a horse being loose in a hospital and how the horse doesn't know what it's doing in the hospital. Everyone in the hospital <laughs> doesn't know what the horse is doing in the hospital. And I just thought it was a really sort of gentle way of making that sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of getting that concept of this and embodying this presidency across in a great joke. So Yeah, so um, obviously humour is a great way of conveying messages both directly and indirectly. Yeah. Um, and you know, a good proportion of the listeners will either be in business themselves or um, might be you know, inspired perhaps to start, start a business or might just be happy in their career and just curious to know what we're talking about. Yes. But um, what, I can, what I can safely say is that across the board for the listeners, they might benefit in using humour in some way to help them deliver a message. Um, what, what are the do's and don'ts for them? You know, what, what should they do and what shouldn't they do? So it's really, yeah, I mean, I always like to use the Spider-Man quote for humour. You know, when you, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. With humour comes a really uh, great understanding of emotional intelligence because it, there are times when it's not appropriate. Sure. So you're absolutely right. So times to use it. Um, icebreakers are great when you are, you know, meeting someone for the first time, when you are, um, you know, doing a presentation for the first, you know, or doing a presentation that sort of at the start of a presentation, um, it's, it can be good to use humour. And I just also in difficult situations. So I've had disciplinary meetings where I've had employees come in and I've used the joke at the start of the meeting. Now, you'd say that was a completely inappropriate setting. But as long as you use it sensitively and you make yourself the butt of the joke in a way that's that's um, deprecating but not undermining your credibility or authority, that's that that can work. So there are you know number of ways. Obviously, you know I was just coaching a speaking client this morning about. Um, she, you know, it's it's a talk which on the surface could be particularly um, dull about uh, mental health and waste management. And we were talking about these people who do picking because I didn't re I just realised this. You know, there's some really bad conditions. But anyway, so basically, all the waste goes to these material sorting centres, okay. and people have to manually pick out stuff Ooh. that is recyclable but gets missed by the machines. Okay. And we were talking about how she could describe it as a sort of you know nightmare generation game you know so it's it's like you can use exaggeration or metaphor and putting something again it's sort of taking things out of context um and exaggerating them that makes it funny you know and 
but that's for her to get that message across. But yeah, it's it's. I would say think about it. Um, I've seen lots of people, you know, ruin <laughs> ruin their reputation by misusing comedy. Sure. But it is absolutely brilliant for your career if you can make people laugh. And I think it goes without saying um, that you don't say the things that wouldn't be appropriate were you not joking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, yes. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff about employment law about how people take things. Yes. But, and there is a golden rule on comedy. So there's two golden rules just to bear in mind, which is always punch up. There's this thing about always punching up. So if you're a boss, for instance, you can make fun of your boss, but don't make fun of your employees. That's one rule probably is good to stick to. And then the other rule is you can only talk about it if you are it. So if if you're you may hear someone from an ethnic minority talking about their own culture or whatever, that's fine. But if you're not in that group, you cannot talk about it. So you know those are the, I think the two sort of big rules to bear in mind. Brilliant. And can you give me some examples of um, perhaps business speakers or um, TV personalities or so on who use humour to um, great advantage, even though they're not put out as a comedian? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a great speaker for people to check out called John Acuff. Uh, he's an American and he is he's written business books and, you know, he's got some great stuff to talk about in business. But he's also really well known for his the humour that he uses in his talks, and it's always clean. And I think that's another thing, just to you know keep it as clean as you can. Then you know there's there's it's horses for courses. If you're in a comedy club late night, fine, be be blue if you want, um, but it, you know keep it clean. Um, Ken Robinson, I always love to use Ken Robinson as an example. So he did a TED talk on. Um, the education system and how schools don't encourage creativity in education and his hit rate for jokes in his talk is brilliant so as a rule of thumb is a professional comedian you're looking to hit four to five laughs per minute and I can't remember exactly the statistics but he is averaging probably I think overall around three which for a business, well, you know, a TED talk is brilliant, but that I think that's a big reason why his is probably the most watched TED talk of all time. So great ones to check out, I think. Fantastic. Um, now for you and your performance background, yes. what, what is the biggest comedy performance you've done? Um, I guess I, I did a gig at the Comedy Store, about 300 people in London. Um, and then I've obviously, I'd done Edinburgh Fringe twice. I had solo shows there. Um, so those are my biggest, if you like. I just, you know, um, it's... They're, they're pretty um, they're pretty high-flying for a CV, aren't they? Yeah, well, it's it's OK. I mean, I, I would say, you know, in terms of... Uh, did, was I successful at my comedy career? Um, in a sense, but obviously didn't make it into the big time. But you have to... It's such, it's a hard graft being, doing stand-up comedy. It's a lot of, you know, travelling around the country. The Unless it's a bit like... I suppose any profession that people want to get into, the money's rubbish until mm. you really make it. But it's sustaining, you know, sustaining yourself while you make it. And it's, I guess it's a great, if you come out of university and you want to have a crack at comedy and you've got no responsibilities, same as any of those sort of professions, then then fine. But I had like a, a, a daughter and a responsibilities. So I did what I could. 
Um, you know, I was often, you know, I've been up to, I did the stand in Edinburgh and um, Glasgow, also really good gigs and Newcastle, but it is taking you away from home and taking you away from your children. And Which must be difficult. Um, I, I do want to ask sort of a, I, I guess an aligned question about the performance uh, because, you know, Comedy Store and Edinburgh Fringe, uh, whilst you've talked them down, let's be honest, they would be the pinnacle of many comedians' careers. Yeah. Uh, they would be the high points. That, that would be what they tell the grandkids in 50 years' time. Um, what tips do you have in terms of um, building confidence and your ability to, to really expose yourself in, in what could become quite a hostile or um, nerve-wracking environment? So, I mean, when I coach my comedy students, one of the things we talk about lots is being prepared. Because, you know, whilst comedians make it look like it's off the cuff, most of it's scripted. And the same with, with, with uh, speaking clients um, is being prepared. And that will automatically make you more confident. With comedy, I guess in some senses we're speaking to, you don't know if some of your jokes are going to work. So trying out material is great. And if you go to comedy nights where they're specifically billed as open mics or you know new material nights that's a great a great way to be able to try out your material and if you're using material in a business context then i would also you know try a few jokes out on on people and see what happens um you know maybe if you're at the pub or you know, at a meeting or, you know, appropriately again. <laughs> I was going to say, did that, had an employment tribunal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's about trying stuff out and, and the, you know, you can read, feel the fear and do it anyway and all that kind of stuff. The, the way to become better at something, the way to get more comfortable is to do it. It's the only way through is, it's, you know, the only way to do it is go through the fear and it's hard, but you just got to put all the, all the sort of foundations in place you know and I always talk about you have this creator we have two parts to us we have the creator and we have the critic and so often I see people fail because they take the critic on stage and so when I'm working with uh, speaking clients or well any, you know anything where you are sort of doing some sort of performance whether you're pitching to investors or whatever you really need to be leaving the critic uh, out and those two parts of you have different roles to play. So the, the creator is the one that has the brainstorm, the ideas, the creativity. The critic is brilliant for researching, for editing, and all that sort of thing. So even to the point of having separate spaces when you're rehearsing, when you're um, actually work, you know, if you're writing or whatever, for those two personalities to do their, you know, sides of you to do their best work. But yeah, and you can see, I, I see clients all the time, whether they're comedy or speaking, I can see the, the, the sort of, they've suddenly thought to myself, oh, that was rubbish or whatever. You can see it in their body language, in their, in, in the, the voice, in all sorts. So that's something I really work hard with people on. You've just got to stay in the moment. If you've done your prep, go for it. And, and, and the other thing I say is, what's the worst that can happen? You know, right? you need to put it in context there's people in war zones you know you're going on stage to ha do something the worst that can happen is you get feedback and you do, do it differently next well time. i can tell you the worst that can happen is that's our rapid fire questions <laughs> <laughs> so what what we do at the end of each podcast yeah. is we run through some rapid fire questions yes um 
one of which was actually inspired by your podcast. Right. So before we dive into those, if you could just tell the listeners where they can hear more from you. Yes. Um, so I have two podcasts, actually. The one that's been going longest is called The Speaking Club. And uh, you can get it on iTunes, um, all, all the other usual places, but also at my website, uh, saraharcher.co.uk. Um, and then the other one is called Story-Led Marketing, and that's more focused on on marketing and with stories and, and humour as well. And that's at storyledmarketing.com. So, but you can get to either podcast really through through each website. Fantastic. So we're going to go on to the rapid fire questions. Yep. And the one that I stole from you is about mastermind groups. Yes. Now you've asked plenty of people who they would have in their mastermind group. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, if you were setting up a group of four and you were one of the members, who are the other three people that you would invite, dead or alive, fictional, non-fictional? I would have, how many have I got, sorry? You've got three people. Three people, right. Plus yourself. Plus me, yeah. Uh, I love a guy called Russell Brunson. Okay. He's a bit of a hero of mine. I would definitely have Russell Brunson in. Um, Is he the marketing guy? He owns a company called ClickFunnels. That's right, yes. Which I love. And he's, yeah, he's he's a bit of a marketing guru. Um, there's another a marketing guy called Gene Schwartz who was a master copywriter um, and in direct response. So him, and then I've got to have a comic. Well, you've got yourself. Well, that is true, that is true. But I think someone else to, uh, do you know who else I'd have? Ricky Gervais. Fantastic. I, I love him. I know he's, I just love him. He's, he's cool and he's a brilliant writer. Which I, so yeah, those three. Do you know what I love about Ricky Gervais? I, I know we're going a bit off, um, off topic here, but. He just is his characters, isn't he? Uh, he? Well, he is, but he... The authenticity just shines yeah, through. I don't know if you've seen his latest one, though. But in, in a sense, he is. But, but the way he's written the show, it's about someone who's afterlife, so who's just yeah. lost someone. But the way he's written the show is that he is poking fun at his own views that his character portrays. So you, you don't really, you know, I don't really think he believes the way he portrays himself, if that makes sense. Fantastic. Next one. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? I'm a tennis coach. Really? Yeah. So, uh, well, I've probably, <laughs> probably loads of things. So I'm a, I'm a tennis coach. Um, I, I had no idea. Yeah, and I also was a, uh, a, a local government councillor, so I was elected. So those two things, probably the most things that people don't know about me. But yeah. Wow. No, I had no idea of tennis. Do you, do you still do tennis coaching? Or? Um, no, I, I did do a little bit of it back um, probably about, I don't know, seven years ago now, but, but no, I, uh, I don't. Okay, did you play to any level yourself? Or? Yeah, I, went to, I got to county level. Well, I played, okay. uh, did one international tournament, but it was um, for England for the Catholic schools games, but county level was the best I got to. Fantastic, well, that's so, um, something I've learned today. There you go. Um, so the next one is, what is the best purchase that you've made recently for around 50 quid or so over the last six months? Uh, 50 quid, goodness me. Can it be any, does it have it to be, be business related? No, 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 it can be absolutely anything. Um, something that's had an impact on your life. Okay, uh, oh my goodness. I've got one that I, I think of, but it's a bit more than 50 quid. Oh no, go, go for it. If it's, more, if it's more than 50 pound, that's fine. Okay, um, so I love, I love paper. I love writing, um, but I get paper everywhere. And I discovered this thing, which I, I wanted for ages 
uh, and it's called Remarkable. And it's is just what you've got in front of you. Yeah, it's... I was going to ask if you didn't bring that up. I was going to ask. So for um, for those listening to the podcast rather than watching on YouTube, and in fact, those on YouTube won't be able to see this um, because it's hidden behind the sign. Um, but it's a it's almost like a A four sized Kindle. There you go. Um, with the um, e-paper technology i presume yeah it's 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 the closest thing to writing on paper that you can get it also converts your writing to text so you can just um and and it's quite good at recognizing handwriting but for me it's just brilliant for um brainstorming so yes i just love it i love it's replaced completely replaced paper for me fantastic and how how much was it uh, I think it was just over 400 quid. Okay. And do you find that the experience of writing on it is similar to writing on paper? Uh, the reason I ask that is I've got one of the um, one of the Windows laptops where you can detach it, it becomes a tablet, mm. and you can take the pen and you can write on it. But it, it doesn't really have that emotional connection yeah, with the right. words. It does. Yeah, yeah. I do mind maps on it. I do all sorts on it. You can so have a little go-kart. <laughs> You could do journaling. Yeah, absolutely. I'd have a, a week. I have my weekly sort of, you know, the, I have a daily thing where I do the big three and what I'm doing. So that that goes on here. And yeah, just the, it's pleasurable to write on here. Fantastic. No, that looks phenomenal. And I'm a gadget freak, so I'm, I'll be online tonight looking for that. Um, so the next one is what book is the book that you've recommended to the most people to read? I think there's a choice of two. If on a business context, I think the book that started me years ago on the journey that I'm on today was Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week. Yeah. And for me, that just it's a it's a bit of a you know you have that massive aha moment. It's my answer as well. Yeah. Just I know there's loads of books I've read since, but that's the one that began the journey that did you feel it was the book that almost took the handcuffs off yeah that, that's the way i would refer to it but it it made me realize there's a different world out there yeah and this is why i i mean i bore my daughter to death because i talked to her about you know, because i didn't know what i didn't know and i wish i i just wish i could go back in time and give myself you know i keep telling my daughter izzy you read these four or five books and it will change your life and i just wish someone had given me those books when I was 18, because your life would have been completely different. Mm. I mean, I've, I've actually done that with um, my eldest son. He's yeah. got a Kindle preloaded, um, because obviously if it's in the family membership, you can yeah. put your own books on every Kindle you own. Yeah. Um, and he's got a Kindle full of personal development books, yeah. uh, because I would have loved it at 18 as well. Absolutely. I just, I think, and that's the trouble. I think some of this stuff you don't get until you are you know, first, second tier manager, and sometimes not even then, but in terms of the, the personal development, the management stuff, they need to be giving it to people earlier. And I I think academia, there's a whole context piece that's missing that means people don't love learning as much as they could or should, yes. I think. I, I completely agree. And you said there was another book, so you said there was two. I think uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Okay. Probably just I think from a financial, I mean you you probably streets head on that one, but on the, you know just you know because we're on that treadmill of you know buy, get married, buy a house, do this, you know, paye, and again that was another one which took the sort of blinkers off and said there's another way. Yeah. Um, no. So that book again was transformative for me. Um, for me, the learnings that I took from it um, was 
but at, you know, primarily understanding what is a true asset. So for those who haven't read the book, Kiyosaki contends that your home isn't an asset. Yeah. Which goes against everything we're, um, we're told by parents and grandparents. Mm. Yeah, we're told that bricks and mortar is the only way you make money. And actually, Kiyosaki says, well, that's the thing that takes money from you. Yeah. And an asset is something that generates income. So that, that really stuck with me. Yeah, it did. And, it, and But it's interesting. So I absolutely, yeah, you want to get your money working for you. And if it's stuck in a, in a property, it's not necessarily, you're not sweating that asset enough. You're not, mm. you know, and, and doodads as well, like cars and gadgets, I guess, are the doodads. But interestingly enough, Russell Brunson said something against Robert Kiyosaki, which made me think, which was his view is that in order to be an entrepreneur, in order to really feel like you can take the risks that you need to take to build your business, you do need to have that solid platform. So he has, you know, he bought his house so that he's got that security for him and his family. And now he feels able to take that risk. I think it comes down to everyone's own um, risk profile. Yeah. So it comes down to risk profile because if you look at um, is it T. Harvecker, Secrets of a Millionaire Mind? Yeah. I don't know if you've read that book. I haven't read that one. Um, no. So he talks about the um, financial thermometer. Right. The uh, sorry, financial thermostat. But we all have our thermostat set at a certain point, and we always go back to that point, regardless, unless we consciously um, push ourselves out of it. Yeah. So yeah, that would imply that actually you need to become uncomfortable. Yes. And become used to being freezing cold and boiling hot. Yeah. to then work out where you want to be. Um, but then also Tim Ferriss goes against Rich Dad Poor Dad, where he talks about um, lifestyle design. Yeah, absolutely. And in particular, um, you can have a Lamborghini because you can buy it monthly rather than buy it up front. Yeah. So there's all of these different yeah. views. And I think I think you're right when you say it comes down to that risk profile and and where you see yourself on that, um, on that spectrum, really. And I think where you are on your life journey, because if you are 18 you are going to have a different, you know, mindset and, and uh, you know, temperature gauge, if you like, for money versus when you have a young family. And, you know, so it just, it, you know, I think it just depends on the number oh, yeah. of factors. Let's be honest, when you're 18, you're delighted to have £10 left on the last <laughs> day before payday um, because you can go out and have a drink that night. Yeah. Um, but but if, you, it, if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s and you've got yeah. £10 left before payday, it's, um, it's a bit more worrying, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> but how brilliant would it have been to have this knowledge and do something, you know, because I look back at the amount of money I wasted when mm. I was in my early 20s that I threw away just and it just makes me cry that I could have you know used that money to build a future a different future yeah um so richest man in Babylon I really, really oh I love that book now. yeah yeah um, but you know his first rule of put aside 10% of what you yeah, earn exactly how easy would it be to do that at a young age yeah. and not think about it yeah. but you know 10% of what is actually for most people a very small amount at 18 yeah. um you wouldn't really notice it. No. But at the time, it feels like a lot of money. <laughs> it does. Yeah, you actually, I love all, all we've read all the same books, I think, well, which I is think good. we have. Um, so what, what's the best bit of advice that you've ever received? Um, I think it's got quite recently, actually, go for B minus. So, uh, oh, well, it's, it take imperfect action. I'll put it this way rather than that. So I'm, a, I guess, in some senses, I'm a bit of a perfectionist and I tend to want to control stuff and I taking the the speed of implementation is the most important thing to a successful business 
And, and so being a perfectionist, being a control, you know, always wanting to know how rather than who, if that makes sense. So I always now looking to try and find who can do it rather than how can I do it. Um, it's what makes you successful, that speed of implementation. But you have to accept that whilst you're doing it fast, it might not be perfect. Yes. So imperfect action for me is a mantra I'm really working hard and and on the you know a similar it's another way of putting it is go for b minus don't go for a because at least if you go for b minus and it's out there you can be serving people yes. rather than waiting till it's perfect and either someone else has implemented the idea or the heat's gone out of the market or whatever it is yeah my team members get very fed up with me saying ready fire aim yeah exactly um, but that's how I summarize it but I actually I put a shout out on LinkedIn earlier today actually about you know, what, what's the best advice you've had, mm -hmm. and then my blatant engagement grab, tagging the person who told you it. Yeah. Um, anyway, a quote came back that's actually very similar to what you've said. Yeah. Um, that is, the opportunity of a lifetime is only an opportunity of a lifetime during the lifetime of the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And that really resonated with me, but yeah, while something might be great, you, you need to go for it. If you don't go for it, it could go just as easy as it came. Absolutely. You know, I how many people say, oh, I thought of that years ago, but I never did anything about it. But it's the people that just make it happen, you know, and and focus on that one thing until it happens. I mean, that's another, I mean, I've got so many, you know, I learn all the time. I've got so many not weaknesses, areas for development. And I, I know, you know, focus is another one, trying to focus on one thing. And so there's, you know, there's lots of stuff that I still work on myself. I'm, the, I'm a work in progress for sure. Uh, aren't we all? Um, and the last one, go on, tell us a joke. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I, I, I'm in my 40s and my friend said to me, don't worry, Sarah, because 40s are the new 30s. They lied to me because 10 years ago, when my other half reached their hand towards my face, it was to caress me, not to pull a hair out of my chin. <laughs> that's, that's probably a, a re relatively clean and safe it's joke. It's relatively clean and it scares the hell out of me with my recent beard growth. <laughs> That's not happening to me. <laughs> no. I'm not turning 40. Um, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you, you Carl. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Carl Reader Show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. This podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, D&T Advisory, helping you unlock the magic in your business by adding value, not numbers. Find out more at www.team-dt.com. QuickBooks, helping UK small businesses stay on top of their finances.